0: something inspiring when you listen to the garden question podcast hello i'm your host craig mcmanus josh Footer's search to identify the old apple trees growing at his newly purchased home ignited a path to discovering and recovering lost apple varieties in this episode we'll find out why they are important how they are being discovered and saved to benefit future generations Josh is a University of Georgia Extension agent in Cherokee County. He is part of a team that has preserved nearly 140 different apple varieties at the newly planted Heritage Apple Orchard located at the Georgia Mountain Research and Education Center. We will talk with Josh about some very interesting apple stories in this episode 122, Preserving Heritage Apple Trees Rooted Legacy with Josh Footer. An encore presentation and remix of episode 42. Josh, what is the Georgia Heritage Apple Orchard? This is a somewhat newer project that came
1: about really by just sort of a happy accident. I was organizing either my second or third annual grafting class and had reached out to the USDA Apple Germplasm Program up at Cornell University in New York a collection of both living trees, cryogenically frozen seeds and buds from somewhere in the neighborhood of like 8,000 different apple varieties. Reached out to him just to see if they shared scion wood that we might be able to increase our offering at our annual grafting class. And the director there was just incredible. Responded right back, said he'd be glad to share some scions with us and said, I might want to look up this professor at Georgia doing work with apples and gave me the person's name and didn't ring a bell with me because I didn't recognize him from horticulture department or anywhere in the College of Ag. Come to find out was a history professor, uh, Dr. Stephen Mim. Reached out to Dr. Mim. Learned a little bit about the small grant he was working on with doing research and trying to find some of these old lost varieties through initial meetings and some field trips and stuff with him. We sort of changed gears a little bit from what the original plan was to focus on the immediate. We still have some of these old varieties in decreasing availability. As critical as finding some of the old ones is maybe we need to save some of these ones that are still around in, in limited numbers. That's where we brought in Ray Covington, the superintendent at the Blairsville Research Station. Just kind of threw the idea out to him and he got behind it, supported it fully. Then kind of spread the net a little wider and brought some agents in from across North Georgia. Did some trainings, grafted our first batch of 300 trees in what would have been 2020, right before COVID shut everything down. It's amazing how it all just sort of happened. The world kind of changing right before our eyes there. We grafted that first block of 100 varieties in triplicate just in case something happened. It was like March 10th or something like that. University, everything shut down the very next week. We got them all potted up and labeled, put away in nursery pots. At least they were able to be grown out that year of 2020. Came back and had a planting day. Some UGA students from Athens came up. We had some volunteers, agents involved, raised staff up there at the station. And we planted the first block of right around 200 trees. The remaining trees, I think we ended up having about 75 left over. Some of those went as just donations to some technical colleges and I think some went to Young Harris. The goal and the focus is really the varieties of significance in Georgia. We're talking about just the North American apple varieties. There's probably 7,000, 8,000 known named varieties. We don't have enough time and resources and space to try to collect all of them, but at least the ones that had significance either in commercial production or just sort of the homestead and nursery area in Georgia. Hopefully there's a few more that will come to the fore. There's a lot of lost ones. Hopefully there's still an opportunity to maybe achieve the initial goal, which was find some of these old lost ones. And I think we're on that path, and podcasts like yours are really the way to do it, which is get the word out that we have this collection. And if people know of these old trees, reach out to us. One, we'll try to get them ID'd or narrowed down. Two, hopefully we can find a space for them and grow them out.
0: What is the potential number that you think of possible trees out there? Essential is really
1: endless in that every time you plant a seed from an apple, it is a new combination of genes and thus a new variety, if you will. So We can't just go collect every, what would be a, a seedling tree. We are trying to focus on the ones that at least had a name, had a description at some point, really in the ballpark of probably 30 to 50 remaining varieties out there. The Golden Goose out there, Fort's Prize, which was one of the more well-known blue ribbon winner uh, varieties from Georgia, but it disappeared as far as anyone knows. This was an apple variety that won worldwide acclaim, won prizes at International Apple Show out in Spokane, Washington around the turn of the century. For whatever reason, it just sort of fell out of favor and um, got lost to history.
0: How do you identify the trees? They didn't have genetic records at the time of these apples were prominent. How do you identify them now? You start with the descriptions. This is the
1: challenging part, and in a way, you probably never really fully know. But you start with that description from the old nursery catalogs. There's been a number of really good books written over the years. Apples of New York was one of the first ones. This was a compendium of books with full descriptions, color plates. The USDA in the early 1900s actually employed a team of artists, was obviously before good color photography and iPhones in everyone's pocket. They undertook a large homological record keeping where people from across the country sent in fruits. These artists usually worked in watercolor and they would paint these fruits that were sent in. All of these are now scanned and digitized, available on USDA's website. Apples were our deepest collection. I think there's something like 3,500 or more nice, beautiful color records of these apples. The interesting thing is it was also used to document plant diseases as well, you know, because if we're talking about agricultural production, understanding what these diseases look like and the symptoms and progressions, they were also charged with documenting that as well. After Apples of New York, Lee Calhoun passed away just a couple years ago, wrote a book. First edition I think was in the 1990s. He was the first one that really focused on the southern apples, West Virginia, Virginia, and South. In his book, Old Southern Apples, we're talking about 1,400 apples that would have been grown in the southern U.S. His book is broken down into two parts, the ones still known to be in circulation, which is only about 400 apples, and then the ones that are more or less expunged from the record, if you will, which is the back half of his book. That book, I think, is currently out of print. So if you try to find it online, it's probably going to be ridiculously priced. A couple years ago, Dan Bussey used to be with Seed Savers Exchange in Iowa. He's more or less spent 30, almost 40 years of his life collecting all these old Apple descriptions. He put out a seven volume encyclopedia of the Apples of New York. It's an amazing set of books and it reads just like an encyclopedia. Your first book is just A through C and so on down the line. There are apples in there that were new to me. I haven't obviously read it cover to cover every single one. There were apples from Cobb County, Georgia. A lot of times some of these varieties are very well documented. They were sent to the USDA artists or they were around long enough to where they were described fully. When I talk about an apple description, it's not just color, but they describe the cavity, the basin, the stem, the stem length, the stem thickness, the skin color, the overcolor on that base color on the skin, pattern of that overcolor, is it a blush, does it come in streaks? A lot of these clues help us to at least eliminate the stuff that we know it's not, working through deduction and and trying to find that potential matches. Because everyone perceives taste a little bit differently too, and an apple grown in middle Georgia is going to taste different than an apple grown in the mountains of Virginia. Usually the shape of the fruit, the season of the fruit typically does not change that widely. The challenge on some of these is if they were more of landrace variety or a very hyper-local variety where maybe they were just passed around in one narrow region. A lot of times those don't have the thorough descriptions of the actual fruit itself. Matching those is difficult, if not impossible.
0: Do you have varieties in the collection that you haven't ID'd yet? The first
1: year we started with collecting some things that we already knew. We started with that list of significant Georgia varieties. As the story has gone out this year, we do have some scions that were sent to us. We have grafted those this year. Then it's a waiting game, waiting for that grafted tree three, four years down the road to actually start producing fruit to then go back and compare it against the notes. See if this person was right on with their suspicion. This was one of my initial challenges with Dr. Mim. A lot of these old lost varieties, they probably had their merits, but at the same time, maybe there was a reason that they disappeared. We also have just as much opportunity, in my view, to find seedling varieties of merit. By that, I mean these are just varieties that have been in somebody's possession or property. They could have been just a hunter walking by, threw an apple out, or so on and so forth. They never got a name, but hey, maybe they're a nice tasting apple. Maybe they are easier to grow. Maybe they don't get powdery mildew or some of these other challenges. To me, I don't care as much if it has a name or not. If it grows well for the hobbyist and maybe has commercial potential, then man, we'll just call it whatever the person who has the tree wants to call it. It doesn't matter to me whether or not somebody described it in 1909 is it a good apple. That's what I care about.
0: Well, why is all this important? Probably what drew me
1: in, because I don't come from an apple background. I grew up in a gardening family. My grandfather had fruit trees. The apples to me were just another fruit at the cafeteria line for most of my life. Did you eat it or did you throw it away? Oh, no, I would usually eat them. I mean, unless it was a a red delicious or, you know, that first bite was mealy. And then I'd usually go for the orange. What drew me in is the history, because most of them read like uh, characters in a book. If you go back to where they were first discovered, how they were used, origin story, if you will. For some of them, it's just fascinating. Since I've been here in Cherokee, I've been able to meet a number of people, and my favorite stories are really the people in their 70s who say, this is my grandmother's tree, or this is my parent's tree. This thing was big enough for me to climb when I was a kid, so they don't even know how old it is. And within that tree, not just... Summer memories of climbing in a tree and a fixture in their landscape and on their property. It's also then those memories of their family, those meals, those pies, and so on. That's probably what hooked me. Then we're living through a a changing world. Most of the scientific evidence saying that it's getting warmer. North Georgia is really at southernmost end of prime apple growing area. If we're talking about chill hours and if you want an apple to really get that nice crispness, those good sugars, something that's going to keep off of the tree, you need that late summer, fall weather where it's warm during the day, but then cool at night. That's why prime apple growing region is really mostly just North Georgia, even to the north of here. Many of these particularly Southern adapted varieties, they've been grown and adapted more towards growing in Southern climates. The mountains of Pennsylvania in another 20 years may be a zone more similar to North Georgia or North Carolina. The adaptability of a warmer, Growing region, humidity and rainfall could be a good genetic key towards adapting to the future. There's breeding programs at a few universities. They're working with much greater techniques and technologies now. They sequenced the Yellow Delicious in 2011 and the genome was 57,000 genes. The thing with apples that's fascinating is the genome of the apple is double the average number in humans and it's the most genes in any plant species they sequenced up to this point. There's a lot in that genetic sequence. That could be unlocked or maybe turned off towards adapting to future growing conditions.
0: I had read somewhere that Georgia became the center of the U.S. apple industry at one time. How did that come about? Was that a Hopper mold, as I say?
1: Yeah, Clayton. It's in Habersham. Had a higher density of trees than anywhere else in the U.S. As far as the export market and total apples, probably not anywhere in comparison to New York, even back in that day. An interesting story of why did so many varieties become weeded out, if you will, so quickly. Kind of had a perfect storm that happened right after the turn of the century. One, you had basically a bubble economy with speculation in apples right around the turn of the century. Newspaper writers, newspapers themselves were writing some of these articles saying, oh, the North Georgia hills are filled with gold for apples now. Come to find out some of those articles have been written by the people that own the land. And this is probably true across the history of agriculture is this speculative nature of it all. You had a lot of planting going on. You had all this new industry. And then right at the tail end of that, a couple years into that whole bubble, prohibition comes on. A lot of these apples had multiple uses or had uses beyond just fresh eating. Well, some of these were cider apples. We used to use apples for so many different things as America was changing so fast after the turn of the century, you know, more people moving to cities, less people just subsistence agriculture and that type of stuff. So they didn't need those apples to feed hogs and make cider, apple butter and drying and things like that. So a lot of these varieties that really they were there because they were the first one that was ripe maybe in June those apples, if you've ever had an early summer apple, they might be firm and crisp for a day off of the tree. After that, they get soft pretty quick. Well, obviously that has no commercial potential. Back in those days, that had a number of uses. One is it was fresh fruit very early in the year. Then that you would use it for drying, probably be able to bake a few summer pies those apples went away. Then you had railroads opening up the country. They figured out apples grow a lot easier out on the West Coast, uh, particularly in Washington. The rail networks were now connected to the markets in the East. Then you had prohibition. So cider wasn't being produced at all anymore or wasn't allowed to be produced legally. You had just multiple nails in the coffin for apple diversity. You can go back to another collection of USDA records and look at old nursery catalogs it's a fascinating site and you can search by state you can go back in georgia nurseries late 1800s and see the apple varieties they were selling and then just 30 40 years later that variety of apples that they were selling went from 40 to 50 different varieties to by the 1930s you're looking at maybe 20 varieties and really it's Supply demand and uh, things like that. So a lot of those just people weren't spending the time using apples for all those different ways. And some of those just disappeared.
0: I remember a fruit tree nursery, I believe it was in your county, in Cherokee County, called Lawson's Nursery. And he was noted for just a lot of varieties that you couldn't find anywhere, of just really all your fruit trees. And whatever happened to that nursery? My introduction to apples is all just a bunch of happy accidents, sort of like
1: I described meeting Dr. Mem and this whole heritage orchard project. Got the job here in Cherokee. My initiation was we bought a house that had some old apple trees dating back to the original owner who built the house and planted these trees in 1980, 81, 82. As I'm getting here, I'm learning some of these older varieties, and of course. The man who built our house and planted these trees got them right up the road in ballground from Mr. Jim Lawson, who is still with us. And I've just been fortunate to be assigned to this area where he had his nursery and he he still lives. And so I've been able to get up there not as often as I like, but every now and then if I happen to be in the ballground area, I try to stop in and just pick his brain and hear his stories. Had it not been for individuals like Mr. Lawson, who really focused on fruit trees, especially apples, back in the 50s and 60s, because a lot of these varieties, he just either had sent to him or he would just kind of trailblaze along country roads all around the southeast in the summertime, oftentimes just knock on doors. If he saw a tree in the yard that had interesting fruit on it, then he'd find a way to get scions from them the following winter. I hate to think if he had not done that, if he had not been around and had that nursery, what limited few varieties we'd even have available to us today, at least in the Southeast. He was one of the few, if not the only one, doing it for a lot of years. Lee Calhoun came along decades after he got started. Mr. Lawson is an amazing storyteller. He'll talk to you for hours if you have the time encyclopedic type stories of some of these varieties and the people involved, how this variety came about, things like that. So it's been just one of the great pleasures of my job here in Cherokee County is is getting to know him over the years.
0: Does he still have the nursery or somebody still run that nursery?
1: His last catalog was an O2. That was the last year he shipped and sold trees. I think he still would do some custom grafting here and there for some people. Actually, my first year here, I get a call from a guy, probably wouldn't mind me saying his name, but Mr. Wyatt Wood calls me and he says, I got some questions. I got an apple orchard up here. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, "Ah, there's no apple orchards in Cherokee. What are you talking about? This guy had bought a property to build his house and a house for his grown sons and grandkids to be nearby they start clearing out some thickets of privet pine and stuff like that and here are all these old apple trees what it was was one of mr lawson's field nurseries that was just leasing that property. And so after 02, when he was done shipping trees, he just sort of left the trees in the ground. He was never able to sell them. And he'll jokingly tell you, you know, I, I left $75,000 in that field. <laughs> 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 Me and the Wood family have spent the last six years or so, maybe even seven years beating back the privet and recovering a lot of these old trees. That's been a, a chore in trying to figure out what those trees varieties are, because These were under almost complete pine shade. You've had to really go about this recovery effort quite slowly because you don't just cut the pines away and all of a sudden you've got fruit the next year. You know, usually you're talking about fruiting wood on an apple is at least two years old, usually three years old. We had to kind of prune them strategically to get new healthy growth. We're still in the process of seeing fruit on some of these that we've been hand-holding along for the last few years. Some of them we figured out, ah, well, we've got a whole row of these or four of these. We can get rid of the worst ones and just work on keeping these few alive. Most of them have been identified at this point.
0: I guess if you rooted those for the heritage
1: orchard? Yeah, and that's where a lot of our scions came from, were those old varieties that we have been able to identify from that original Lawson Field, the wood property now. We got a number of them there. We got a number of them just from other sort of hobbyist collectors in the area. There's another preservation project up in North Carolina, Horn Creek State Park, where they have managed Lee Calhoun's old collection. And I think they have close to 400 varieties that Calhoun collected over the years.
0: For folks that hear you keep saying sign and they're thinking Star Wars characters, what actually is a sign for people that might not know? We can't plant the seed from
1: a King David, one of my favorite apples. You plant a seed from a King David, it's going to be a new combination of genetics from the mother tree that had the fruit, the father tree where the pollen came from. Really, within that one fruit, you're going to have 10 to 12 seeds. Each of those seeds individually is going to have a new combination, potentially same genetics, but potentially different if that bee went to multiple trees and then pollinated that last flower. If you want to replicate that known variety, that King David, you have to take a scion. An ideal scion is wood that grew on that tree last year, You collect that when it's fully dormant, put it in the fridge. Hopefully you've got like a wetted paper towel or something in that Ziploc bag that's airtight and you keep it refrigerated until it's time to graft towards the end of winter, early part of spring. Then you know reliably you have those exact genetics. So you're basically cloning asexual propagation. The more you get into it, the more you think about, gosh, you know, I have a Grimes Gold in my backyard. Grimes Golden is one of the great American apples, if you will. It's the parent of the Golden Delicious, which gets a bad rap. It's actually a pretty good apple. The Grimes Golden was a seedling tree planted in the 1790s. My Grimes Golden, in reality, is a direct clone of that original tree. In a way, I am eating the same food that the people in 1800s in West Virginia around that original Grimes Golden would
0: have been eating. Well, that's amazing to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never thought about it from that perspective. Yeah. Is Johnny Appleseed a real person? He
1: was a real person. He was a bit of an eccentric from everything I've read about him. It was the American West at that time, which was the Ohio Valley, was being opened and land grants were being given. A lot of those stipulations, if you were given this land grant, you had to plant so many fruit trees. Usually they were apples and so on. He was a businessman. It was some obscure religious denomination, Swedishborgian or something like that. He would go ahead of where these land grants were the West at that time were being opened, and he would plant just apple seeds, have trees ready for those new batches of settlers. And he was selling them seedling apple trees.
0: Are apples native to the United States or to Georgia? Where are they originated from? The
1: uh, apple that we know, this highly desirable edible fruit, is native to the mountains of Kazakhstan. There was native crab apples, malus domestica, the apple that we know is really an interspecies hybrid of all of these different malice species that as these native malice that had those good eating characteristics from Kazakhstan started spreading west across the Silk Road and into Europe. Of course, they're getting cross pollinized and cross-bred with the native crab apple species in the Caucasus Mountains and then in Europe. And then of course, Europeans showed up in North America and oftentimes they would just bring a handful of seeds from their European apples. Sometimes later on, I'm sure they were able to bring probably one-year-old wood and maybe root it when they got here, or sometimes possibly bringing old trees, young one, two-year-old seedling type things. Then you had a proliferation, more or less a second center of origin here in North America because so many seedling orchards were planted, and then there was that cross-pollinization with Native crabapple species, you have as much diversity here in North America as you do back in Asia.
0: What's a typical lifespan of an apple tree?
1: That's a great question. I've heard stories of apples up in the Northeast well over 200 years old. I think here in Georgia we're probably lucky with our longer growing season, years where we get 80 inches of rain. That's a hard life on any plant versus up in Maine trees I've visited, I know have got to be, some of them, 80-plus years, and and you would think this tree should have died decades ago, completely rotted to the core, centers all the way dead, and it's just alive on one shoot off of the side. These things, they definitely outlive us, and I think that's just one more reason why I love them, is they really are uh, multi-generational. You can have these families with memories and stories of these plants that live long past us.
0: What do you wish people would do differently when designing or building a, an orchard or growing a garden or landscape? Obviously, since COVID and really since I've been in this job, there's
1: you know, more and more people interested in growing a little bit of their own food. Is really, particularly with fruit trees and apples, is it shouldn't be an impulse buy. Do not buy this thing at the checkout line at Garden Retail Center or somewhere like that. Study all the things that you need to know, or at least some of them. Give your local extension office a call or look on the extension website. We've got a a pretty good publication on apples. There's a number of different things to consider from full sun, good water drainage, the variety is important because there are some that are more disease resistant but as important of all of that is the rootstock variety that's almost always overlooked because you have rootstock varieties that'll make a big climbing tree i mean these are wonderful trees in the yard but usually apples are not the best shade tree you get a number of diseases you want a tree that's going to be easier to prune easier to maybe spray once or twice thin fruits you have a lot of management in these trees and You want them to be smaller. You don't want to do all this stuff on a roofing ladder. If a nursery can't tell you the rootstock variety, then I would probably look for a different nursery until I found the rootstock variety that I was looking for. Those first couple years, I see a lot of hobbyists or that homeowner that wanted a couple fruit trees in the yard and they just plant them and then they walk away. There's training involved. It's just like raising kids, if you will. The more you can get right in those first few years, the better off that thing's going to be in 20 years. Positioning branches at the right angles, pruning at the right times, opening that thing up for good airflow, sunlight penetration, that's all important stuff if we're talking about a fruit tree.
0: Back on the rootstock, why is knowing what type of rootstock important? If you end up with a a standard size rootstock, you could have a
1: tree that has a ton of vigor. It's going to grow a lot of wood every year. It may not even be the most fruitful tree because it is so vegetative and not reproductive in its growth pattern. You're going to be an excellent pruner and you may not be that productive in your fruit harvest. I inherited about 25, 40-year-old trees. These were all on standard size rootstock. I'm talking about doing pruning up in the branches. Usually I'd use my six-foot ladder and then I'd actually climb up into the branches 15 feet off the ground trying to do pruning. I was only doing that once a year. If your fruit is 20 feet off the ground, good luck getting a spray up there if you wanted to do any sort of disease or insect prevention. Just about everything wants to damage an apple tree, from field mice and voles chewing on the roots or girdling the young tree those first couple years. Deer will rub their antlers against the trunk. They will chew buds in the wintertime. They will chew leaves throughout the summer. Scale insects... Brown marmorated stink bug is becoming more and more challenging. Birds, squirrels, you name it. They're cornucopia pests that will enjoy an apple tree. It's a roseaceae. So if you can think about growing a 40-foot rose bush, there's a lot of pests that want to get on these things rootstock that's going to limit its growth to control some of that vigor. And I don't love a dwarfing rootstock either for, say, the hobbyist person that wants a tree or two in the yard, because the more you dwarf it, the less anchorage you're going to have. You may have a tree that while it it will outproduce by square inch or square foot these bigger trees, it may have a root system that's similar to, say, a a three-month-old tomato plant. You get a fruit load on there and then you get wind and these things may just fall right over. You don't want that to happen. For most people that want a freestanding tree, something that is going to be able to hold the weight of the fruit, not fall over with a straight line wind, then you're really in the neighborhood of like a good semi-dwarf rootstock. There's a few with different characteristics but something in the kind of that M7 root class, which is maybe about a 15-foot tall tree at maturity. What is your earliest garden memory? I grew up in a gardening family. My mom always had a vegetable garden. Afternoons and weekends over at my grandpa's house, which was in Northern California in Fairfield, you can grow just about everything there. On this old 1950s-era neighborhood, I think it was about a 6,000-square-foot lot, he had a big fig tree, he had a kumquat, he had an orange, a lemon, grapefruit, and even a couple of apple trees, current bush on the chain-link fence. To me, that was like spending time in Alice's Wonderland in his little yard, climbing trees and eating fruit. It's probably why I'm into gardening now. I told this story a few times. I was an Air Force kid. We had to move from where my mom's family was there in Northern California to Southwest Oklahoma. I mean, you can hardly grow anything out there. It's so hot, so dry. Nevertheless, she wanted to have this big garden, and I was the oldest of four. We had this big garden, and summertime, that was almost daily chore, was going out and doing something. told her, I said, when I grow up, I'm never going to have a garden. This is miserable. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, that's what I said when I was your age. I think it probably does get in you as a kid if you have at least some of those positive experiences, some of that enjoyment of that relationship with the plant, eating fruits or vegetables uh, fresh from the garden. I went to college, thought I was going to be an econ major because I tested well in high school and things like that. And it didn't take me more than one econ class in college to realize I like being outside. Maybe that whole gardening stuff wasn't that bad. Ended up being in the College of Ag and figuring out we had a hort department and changed my major the first year to horticulture and landscape architecture.
0: What got you into extension as an educator?
1: I've done a bunch of different things. I got my undergrad in horticulture and landscape architecture. After grad school, I knew I wanted to serve in a way and see some of the world, get some stories for when I was an old man. didn't think military was quite for me, but when I was in college, I learned about the Peace Corps. After my master's program, which was in international studies, because I knew I sort of wanted to go on that career track, did Peace Corps and did kind of agriculture related community development projects in uh, the South Pacific. After that, that stuff they tell you about, boy, when you get home, all the jobs are going to be there, and recruiters are going to see this on your resume. I was at the end two thousand and eight, and there were no jobs to be had anywhere. <laughs> Figured some things out and just kind of changed gears a little bit. Went back and worked in Micronesia, next country up in the Pacific, doing conservation work with the local conservation organization out there. Did that for almost two years, and did some disaster management work with the USAID grant in the Marshall Islands. And then at that point, it was sort of time to come home. I had met my wife, who was a Peace Corps volunteer herself in Micronesia. We ended up finding jobs in the Atlanta area. I was working in Atlanta with Southeastern Horticultural Society, which used to do the big flower show. I helped start a fairly big one acre production garden with the Good Samaritan Health Center, as well as the Chastain Park Learning Garden project. Did that for two years, wanted to get on a little more stable ground, learned about extension. Even though, you know, I went to a land grant university and we had extension in our county. I just know enough about it. The opportunity came up here in Cherokee and here I am almost seven years later.
0: Do you have a funny Apple story for us? You know, one, I've gotten to
1: meet some of the just the best people in the world through apples, one of which has become a just a great family friend now, retired man up in Ellijay. I met him at a grafting workshop over in White County before I ever even held one myself here. And just so happened I was at the table next to him, a tired guy named Winston Cantrell. Somehow we reconnected after just sitting next to each other. Well, he's been a hobby grower up in LJ for 20 years, of course, knows Mr. Lawson. He has a variety that he calls the Woodstock variety. Well, of course, Woodstock is here in Cherokee County. And the story on the Woodstock apple is he was working down at Lockheed Guy that he worked with was building a new house in Woodstock. After dust settled and he needed some plants for the landscape, he went into the woods and dug up four trees he thought were dogwoods because they're all blooming white at the same time. Well, one of them was this Woodstock apple. It's a great apple. So I don't know if it's a funny story, but it's one of the things that, again, just kind of further endears you to this project and to the the people involved and to this really just fascinating plant.
0: In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer?
1: There's so many great people within Extension. you have got county agents nearby and across the state that I look to for advice, for program ideas and things like that. Of course, our specialists are always there if I have something that's beyond my knowledge level, which most things Mm -hmm. are. Locally, if we're talking apples, Mr. Lawson probably has done more than anybody to <laughs> kind of get me down this narrow rabbit hole of the apple world. A world's full of great people. Locally, I've made some great contacts with local nurseries. My master gardener group support me just incredibly well. Sort of takes a village with an extension almost. You can't know enough with the questions that come in and some of the situations. There's nobody in the world that can have every answer related to ponds and insects and bugs in the home and all the things that people might happen to grow. I really lean on just a lot of people.
0: What's your most valuable garden
1: mistake? I'm still living through a number of mistakes. I don't know if I've learned the lesson well enough. I would say plant choices. Canna lilies, <laughs> malapar spinach. Um, I put that in a couple of years ago and I'm still battling that. Somebody gave me one of those tall rudbeckias, one of the native types, and man, that stuff is just spread from seed all over and I cannot get on top of it. Being more judicious and selective with what I actually bring into my landscape is probably the thing I've had to learn
0: the hardest. Be aware of people bearing free plants, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And a, and a good deal is not always a good <laughs> deal.
0: <laughs> what have you recently learned that you didn't know regarding horticulture? I'm always learning something
1: with just the stuff that comes out of left field to extension. One of my favorites, though, over the last couple of years, and your listeners may appreciate this, I get a call from one of my Apple buddies that's come to various programs and stuff. Well, he says, man, I got this pest on my Apple buds. Trees are not leafed out yet, but it was springtime. And there are these flies that are just hanging there dead. It doesn't look like any of our typical pests. Of course, I come home walking in my trees, and sure enough, I'm seeing the darn things too. And it's just these dead flies hanging out some of the higher points in the trees. Reached out to our specialist. Very common in the springtime to get these mostly hoverflies, syrphid flies, that are infected with a fungus, Endomorphthora. This fungus basically takes over their brain waves, turns them into zombies, makes them then go to a high point. They die. And then the natural progression of that fungus is they're at a high point. The fungus is going to come out and sporulate, spread to the next generation. Zombie flies is probably the funnest new thing I've learned in the last year or so.
0: Well, I can check that off my list for today because I didn't know about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing I love about this job is, man, there's always something new that it's like, my gosh, who knew this was going on right in front of our faces out in the garden Yeah, uh, year in and year
0: out. I'd like for you to complete this statement, in my garden I have. In my garden, I have too much ambition and not enough
1: time. Well, tell us about that. My my landscape is full of half-finished projects. I've got three young kids, over two acres, and a lot of plants and a lot of uh, garden space. I don't always get it all done. And then family life catches up and bad weather on the three-day weekend that I had in mind to (laughs) finally finish this two-year-old project. And then it has to go to the next three-day weekend. And (laughs) I've got a couple of retaining walls that are just waiting to be finished.
0: Yeah, those are fun.
1: What's your favorite plant? One thing is I really have a strong sense of fragrance, if you will, or a strong nose. One of the things I realized as I was transitioning this 40-year-old property that beyond having a big southern magnolia and a few old apple trees, really didn't have much. So trying to cut out areas of the old patchy grass, put in more landscape. I was putting in a lot of just the standard commercial plants that are available and realizing they might look nice from the road or from inside the house, but I was missing that sense of fragrance. That's what draws me to a plant in a lot of ways. I've tried to select a number of plants here and there. Of course, we've got the tea olive, which is just fabulous, at least once, if not twice a year. Toad lilies. Got those from a gardening friend. I really love those, even though there's no fragrance there. But man, they are cool looking. Put in a paper bush a year or two ago. Flower buds that are developing and just sort of hanging on there are gorgeous. And I've got three new trees, two of which I've actually got in the ground. The other one is still waiting. I got a kooza dogwood, a yellow wood, and a Chinese fringe tree. And I'm really looking forward to seeing those kind of mature in my landscape. Put in a yellow jessamine. I had a unique landscape situation it was I ran some wires of uh, kind of whole four sides as high as my roofing ladder would go. And I planted a yellow jessamine at the base of that thing last spring. And man, that thing has completely covered in evergreen foliage in one season as high as those wires go. For that, it's a pretty good plant. Hopefully I won't regret it like I have some of my other additions. I've put in a few of the switchgrass cultivars, Shenandoah, Heavy Metal. I've liked those all right. They're useful for me as somebody who has to do a lot of brush burning because I do a lot of pruning. A spring window and we can do that burning. That wood may be still wet or have gotten rained on a few days ago. It doesn't matter how wet that wood is. I can go cut a few clumps of my switchgrass and I can get that stuff burning. It's dual purpose for me. There happens to be people that are listening and they have that old family property. I'd love to hear from them. I get calls out of the blue from areas across Georgia with people with those old trees or just want to share memories of their old trees. That's one of my favorite things in this job. And since this project has started is hearing from individuals with maybe an old tree. They want to get identified or man, even just want to share a memory of, of a tree they had growing up. They have a lead on a, a good old apple tree. I'd love to hear from them. Josh, tell us how people may connect with you. The easiest way is through email, which is J, my last name, fooder, F-U-D-E-R, at uga.edu. Of course we have the extension website for Cherokee
0: County and Facebook page, extension Cherokee County Facebook page. This has been episode 122, Preserving Heritage Apple Trees Rooted Legacy, with Josh Footer, an encore presentation and remix of episode 42. Thank you, Josh. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.